Let's all together look at John chapter 13, and I will read verse 1 and then pray. John 13, verse 1. The Word of God says this. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Let's pray. Father, I want to confess for us that the only reason we can be here is because you did not give up in your love, but you loved your own to the end. You were obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As much as we were unworthy of your mercy and grace, you poured it out in unending measure. And so, Father, in this moment, I pray that you would quiet the anxious heart. You would communicate your presence to the lonely heart. That you would strengthen the weak soul. And that right now, you would humble us all to be hearers of your word and doers of your word. I ask that you would grant us faith in this moment because our hope is not in anything else other than your promise that your word will not be empty. It will accomplish its purposes. And so we trust that your spirit, that he is alive and at work in this moment right now. So help us to listen with a sense of belief that you are going to do great things in us individually and as a body, we pray for it. We ask for it. Breakthrough. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we are in a new series today entitled Unveiled. Subtitle is The Self-Disclosure of Jesus in John 13 through 21. And so ultimately what we find ourselves in, in, is jumping into the middle of the book of John. And in John 1 through 12, what Jesus communicates about himself is seen in seven signs, seven miracles, which underscore the fact that he is the Messiah, that he is the king of power, the king of glory. He is the one that the Jews have been waiting for, and then chapters 1 to 12 also underscore that the Jews themselves rejected their Messiah. And so, this began to remind me of the word surprise. Have you ever had a surprise before? Some of you love surprises, right? You love it when you weren't expecting it and it pops out of nowhere and you are like, yes, this is great. Sometimes it communicates that somebody thought about you. Sometimes you just like the gift itself and you're just like, I wasn't expecting it and this is great. Now, others of you who really don't like to have things go differently than you've planned, you don't like surprises. 
Many of you have been surprised and it's just like, oh, that was not what I was expecting. And there's a sense of panic. Sometimes there's anger. Sometimes there's just, you know, whatever. And it reminded me of a moment when I was a kid. Now, my wife and I joke a ton because as, a, as an adult, she remembers a ton of things about her childhood, like things when she was three. And like, my brain does not do that. I, I, it's good if I got one or two things kind of stored in here about back in the day. Um, but this story always kind of comes in my brain when I think about my childhood. Now, don't think that, you know, my whole childhood was traumatic. I have other good thoughts. They're just few. This one is a little more on the traumatic side for me as a little kid. So I went to a birthday party. When you go to a birthday party, you would give gifts. And so that gift, most of the time, you're not communicating to that person what you're giving them, right? That's kind of a surprise. And so I remember my mom asked this kid's mom what he likes and what he would like for us to give him. And so the comment was, he wants underoos, okay? Now, some of you might not even know what underoos are. Underoos are superhero underwear, okay? Now, already off the bat, it's kind of an awkward gift, right, okay? Usually don't give underwear to your friends, okay? It's just kind of awkward. But, you know, it was, it was acceptable. It was culturally okay back then. And so she said he wants underoos. So that's what we did. Went to the store, bought the underoos, wrapped it up, we're sitting there, blew out the candles, had the cake, and now it's time to open up gifts. And he opens up my gift, and I thought it was pretty safe. I bought Superman, okay? Superman's a pretty safe superhero, right? Okay, he opens them up. I still remember those blue tidy whities that he pulls up and holds up like this. He breaks down crying. He weeps, and then he says, I already have Superman. Why did you get me Superman? You know, looking back as an adult, I was like, you spoiled brat. But, you know, in the moment, all I could think of was my heart is crushed. He hated my gift. And so, you know, I was just thinking the whole time, how can I get out of here? How can I get out of here? He hated my gift. How can I get out of here? And so this was my childhood. Now, this is how some of us treat surprises. And honestly, this is how the Jews treated the surprise of Jesus being the Messiah. They rejected him. They wanted nothing to do with him. And Jesus in John chapter 13, he has accomplished everything that he was to accomplish according to the Father, except now his face is set like flint to the cross. And having done all that the Father had asked him to do to this point, he begins to unveil himself. He's no longer going to be talking as cryptically. He's going to walk straight into Jerusalem where he was hated by the Pharisees and he knew it. And he was going to unveil himself to the world no matter what it cost him. And the question that I have for us today is what will our response be as we read and study and look at John 13 today and the rest of the book in weeks to come, what will our response be when Jesus unveils himself to us? How will we respond? 
Will we receive him or will we reject him? John 12, verse 44, lead into chapter 13, says this. Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. What I want you to notice is a couple of things. He parallels belief and seeing. You see that? Seeing Jesus, receiving him, and walking towards the light, not running into the darkness, is what it means to have faith, what it means to believe in him. And so when Jesus unveils himself and shines as a light to be seen as the suffering servant Messiah, the question that's there for the reader is, what are you going to do with what you see? And he wants us to see him and not take him as we want him to be. That was the Jews' problem. But to take him as who he reveals himself to be. It's all or nothing. We don't get to pick and choose what we like about Jesus. We take it all. And this John 13 and following is the unveiling of Jesus and the calling out to the reader, are you going to take him as he is? Are you going to receive him? And are you going to live for him so that you are living for the light and not walking in darkness? So today we're going to see that Jesus unveils himself in three ways. He unveils himself as an obedient servant, number one. Two, he unveils himself as the suffering servant, number two. And three, he unveils himself as the loving servant. And the question that we want to ask ourselves of this very moment is will we receive this picture of Jesus and walk towards him and not away from him? Will we receive this message that he has as he reveals and unveils himself to us in John 13. So let's get cracking at it. John 13. Now I want to just set up briefly, if I may, the outline of John 13 all the way to the end of the book, okay? So John 13, at the beginning, he states that having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. This is the the bookend, this is the beginning that says everything that he is doing is for love. He is doing this for love, and the first way that he seeks to love them is to prepare them for what's to come. Because he knows they will never again experience something so traumatic. They will never witness such heinous, ugly, horrific expressions of sin like the killing of the Son of God as they will experience over this week's time. They will suffer in horrible ways, and they need to be prepared for what is to come. And so John 13 is a preparation. It is a preparation of his people for what's to come. And at the end of John 13, beginning about verse 31, we begin to see what is called the farewell discourse. And this is Jesus' kind of goodbye speech and goodbye conversation with his followers that is preparing them 
for the end. And it goes all the way to John 16, and then he prays to conclude that conversation in John 17. So John 17 is an entire, the whole chapter is a prayer. And then once you get past this prayer in John 17, John 18 to the end might be called the Passion Narratives. It is the road to Calvary, his death on a cross, and his resurrection, and how he sends his people out based upon those beautiful gospel facts. Christ died, he rose again, and he will come again. So this is the book of John from John 13 to the end. That's where we're going. And so today we are looking at how he prepares his people for the suffering to come. And he does so by unveiling himself first as an obedient servant. And so let's look at this first point. Verses 1 to 17 kind of lay this out. Jesus as an obedient servant. Now, I have preached on this text before, just about two and a half months ago. So I'm not going to spend a ton of detail on this first section. Because in the Alive series, being made alive in Christ by serving one another, I used this passage and went through it in detail. So I will not be going through verse 17 verses in great detail, but I will be bringing it up here because it is part of how Jesus unveils himself from the beginning of this section. Now it says, Jesus unveils himself as an obedient servant. Let's look at it in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover... What does this mean? What's happening here? Last week's sermon was a sermon that showed a woman named Mary who had witnessed something miraculous. She is now on the Saturday before Jesus is crucified. A week beforehand, on a Saturday, she's in the house of Simon the leper. And she is there with her sister Martha and with her brother who was once dead and is now alive. Lazarus. And so they're sitting in the house, and after they had eaten, Mary bends down, takes this pure nard and anointing perfume, and washes Jesus' feet with what amounts to an entire year's salary, and does it with her hair as a means of saying, this man is worthy of all affection and all praise, and all glory. And that was on Saturday. The next day on Sunday, Jesus looks out over the city of Jerusalem, it says in Luke 19, and he weeps. Because he knows, he knows this people. And he knows that they will betray him. But then he gets on a donkey, fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, and revealing how the king will also be a servant, a humble king, and he rides into Jerusalem, and the people come out with palm branches waved, and they start waving it. We might find that a little weird, but what it communicated in that culture was, this is the victorious king. He is the one that will deliver us, specifically, more than likely, they thought he would deliver us from Roman oppression. He would deliver the Jewish people from Roman oppression. So they were waving these things. This is the key. This is the guy. If he could raise Lazarus from the dead, surely he's going to be able to solve our political problems. But that's not how it rolled. And the very people who were waving branches were also the very people who were yelling at the end of the week, crucify him, crucify him. So it's after Sunday. We find ourselves, Jesus meeting with his followers, and 
It was before this feast of the Passover, and Jesus says this. It says, Jesus knew his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And so during supper, verse 2, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, this means the Father had given him everything that he needed to accomplish, everything that he needed up to this point. Now the only thing that was left was to die for sinners. The Father had given everything into his hands and that he had come from God and that he was going back to God. He was going to die and then he was going to ascend to the right hand of the Father. Verse four, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist, poured water in a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet. Even Judas, who was going to betray him. And now if we run to the end of this story, at the end of verse 12, Jesus tells us why he does this. In verse 12, he says, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, And you're right, for so I am. More than likely, once again, because John uses it regularly and Jesus uses it with his followers, when he says, I am, it is a declaration of divinity, that he is God himself. And so he says, I am your teacher. I am your Lord. I am God, in verse 14. If I then... Your Lord and teacher, namely, if I'm greater than you and yet I wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Namely, I have been obedient to my Father and now I am displaying what following my Father looks like. It is A servant's heart. And so he says in verse 16, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant's not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Meaning if the master is going to wash feet, then so should the servant. And if the one who sends out the messenger is going to send a message that says we should wash one another's feet, then the messenger should do that. Because we're not greater than he is. And so verse 17 says, If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. If you do them. So the picture has been throughout the book of John that Jesus is fully obedient to his Father. He does everything that he's supposed to do. And now he invites us to follow in obedience. Here's the ground that we have to stand on. Every one of us in this room, if I'm to ask you, are you fully obedient or are you disobedient, every single hand in the room would say, I am a disobedient person, including mine. No matter how much you try to gloss over, but I'm good here and I'm good here, you're still disobedient, and so am I. 
So Jesus had to come to be the obedient one. The Father gave him everything that he needed. And he was going to be obedient, chapter 13 says, even to the point of death on the cross. He had to stand in our stead because we could not be obedient. So when he tells us to be obedient, it is not in order that we might earn acceptance. It is because he will earn our acceptance by his death and resurrection, and we have to trust him. And based upon faith in him, then we live like him. So this anchor of now you'll be blessed if you do what I ask you to do, it is not a sense of, like many religions want to craft, it is not a sense of be obedient that you might be accepted. Because that's not the way it works. Jesus came, lived this perfect obedient life, and now he says, by faith in me, follow my example. Follow my example. And so, when you lay out this washing people's feet, getting down low and being a servant, if you're like me, we can read it and it can just kind of pass right over, in ear, one ear, out the other. But he is calling us to be obedient to him and to be obedient servants. In our house, when we talk about obedience, we say three things. I got it from uh, some dear friends that were helping us as young parents, that we want our kids to obey all the way, right away, with a happy heart, okay? All the way, right away, with a happy heart. If I tell my little boy, you need to go and clean up the cars in your room, and I need you to clean them all up, and he goes and he cleans up two of the 20 cars, he has not been obedient. As much as he wants to tell me, I did it, I cleaned up, right? He didn't do that. All the way, right away. If I tell him, let's go clean up his room, and he says, wait just a minute, I'll do it later. Not in my house, you'll do it right now. You'll do it now. And then we obey all the way, right away, with a happy heart. Bedtime is the worst. Okay, it's bedtime. And he says, okay. <laughs> That's not okay. Let's try again, okay? You don't have to jump for joy, but you've got to at least respect the command. And so, okay, he walks up the step without stomping. That doesn't mean his heart is reverberating with happiness. Eventually, what's going to happen is he'll realize that when you're not happy in your heart, you repent of not being happy and you follow forward in obedience anyway. But you still have the grid of I must fight to be respectful and to be happy that God is doing what is good for me. And so now we lay it out there, and he asks us. He asks us through his word, sometimes through impressions by his Holy Spirit. Don't say this now. Why don't you listen right now? And he asks us to be obedient, fully obedient, all the way, right away, with a happy heart. And that's what Jesus is asking right now. He's saying, get really low, get really dirty, pursue others, initiate service, obey me. Obey me fully. 
Because he says in verse 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one who, the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. There is this not receiving what you want, but receiving who he is. And as you receive Jesus, you receive the Father. This is a clear declaration of what Jesus has already said in chapter 5, I and the Father are one. But when it comes to obedience, it is not a picking and choosing. It is a receiving all that God is for us and following all that he commands of us. And this is why it's so crucial. It's so crucial for us to even though we don't understand everything, to follow what God says. Have you ever had times when you just like, really, is this what I'm supposed to do? I think it happens a lot when it comes to loving others. And he says, you know, don't seek revenge, but pray for those who persecute you. It's almost like you want to say in your heart, like, what planet do you live on? You know, it's like, good night. Do you know what's happened? And he says, I do know. Obey all the way. Obey right away. And obey happily, not because you like how you're being treated, but because you know that obeying me is the best path for you. But many times, it'll be beyond what you can, you would really think is right. And that's why Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 helps me so much. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. But in all your ways... Acknowledge him. Morning, evening, Sundays, at work, with your family, watching sports. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And he'll make your path straight. You trust him. Obeying him is the happiest path you can be on. Now, when it comes to serving, Jesus, I put the term obedient service because we can not only do we see Jesus' obedience, but we can serve in unhelpful ways, right? I can serve you in order that people might see me serving, and then I would be known as the serving guy, and that's really good, because I like people to think well of me. That's not what Jesus is commending here. Another reason I could serve is I could serve in order to put people in my debt. I'll serve you, because then I know you owe me something later on, right? That's another reason you can serve. And even though sometimes we might not express that that's why we serve, many times we act that way, right? We act that way when we rehearse all the ways we've served you, and now it's time that you start serving me. Aren't we thankful that that's not how Christ taught? Because he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He did for us what we obviously could not do for ourselves. And so service is not trying to put people in your debt. It's not for fame. It's not for people's acceptance. So why does he mention service right here in leading to the cross? Why is he prepping his people saying you must be a servant? It's because his people must begin to glory in weakness, not in greatness. At least greatness as the world defines it. He defines greatness by being humble, by being low, 
a relationship with God is predicated not on you being great, but on you being humble. He wants us humble to say, whatever, my yes is on the table. I follow you wherever you lead me. And a relationship with you is a relationship where we are known as servants. Another pastor, Richard Sibb, says this, Christ refuses none for weakness, but accepts none for greatness. The world would tell us that to be great, that's how we earn approval, and Christ flips it on its head, and he says, I accept you in weakness. I don't accept you because you're great. He gives us clarity on what obedience means. He will not refuse the weak. He actually draws near to the lowly and contrite of heart. And so we follow our obedient Savior by being obedient to his commands. But Jesus unveils himself not only as an obedient Savior, but a a suffering Savior. And we begin to see it in verse 21. Look at verse 21. It says, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. One of you, I just washed your feet. I just served you. You've been with me for years, and one of you will betray me. And he goes on. The disciples looked at each other uncertain of whom he spoke. And one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, that's how John refers to himself throughout this book, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him and asked to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into Judas, and Jesus said to him, what, are you, what you are going to do, do quickly. And now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that it was because Judas had the money bag, and Jesus was telling him, go buy something that we need for the feast, or go care for the poor. Verse 30, so after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Can you imagine how you would feel? Jesus describes his feelings in verse 21. He was troubled in his spirit because he's looking at Judas in the eye, having just washed his feet, and Judas still so cold-hearted that he will eat with one and still be hell-bent towards betraying the very one who loved him so well for so many years. That's pain. And it just shows how irrational sin is. He thought it was better. He thought the money he would get would be better. Better than the Savior that came to die for sinners. He thought it would be better to follow this path and yet, what, how did it turn out for him? After he committed this heinous, atrocious crime against an innocent man, he ended up hanging himself. 
It shows how irrational sin is, how we think it's okay, but it is not. Our Savior knew what betrayal was like. He knew it. And not only that, he also knew what denial would be like. Look at verse 36 of chapter 13. Verse 36 of chapter 13. It says, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Now this is Simon Peter who is a verbal processor. He is an out loud processing kind of guy, okay? And so I like those kind of guys. <laughs> I do that sometimes. Okay, verse 36, he says, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now. But you will follow afterwards. What, what's he speaking of? He's speaking of his death, right? I'm going to go die for you. And I'll be raised from the dead. You can't go with me now. But you will follow afterwards. And he even tells him later on in the book that following him will lead to his own death. But Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And I really believe he meant that. Like I really would. And Jesus answered. And I can just look into Jesus' heart and see almost of the sense of brokenheartedness. Will you, Peter? Will you lay down your life for me? He says, truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Judas was in the 12, but Peter was in the inner circle. He got more exposure, so to speak, more lessons, more one-on-one -on -one time. Peter was a man of faith, but even the men of faith can have times of weakness and times of lowness. And Jesus looks at him and knows that he's going to deny him as well. How would you feel? This is who I'm going to die for. I'm going to die for the betrayers, and I'm going to die for the ones who will deny me when things get really hard. He said that he was troubled in spirit. It's the same phrase that's used earlier in John 11 when he looks at Lazarus and Lazarus has died and he looks at Lazarus' family and they are weeping and it says that he is deeply troubled in his spirit. There's a sense of outrage and hatred that brokenness and betrayal is in this world at all. Things are not as they should be. This is what he's feeling. Intense pain. I haven't even gotten to the point where he is whipped where robes are put on just long enough for the blood to start hardening and then it's ripped off again, where the crowns are put on, where nails are put into his hands and feet. Hadn't even gotten there. He knows suffering. He knows betrayal. He knows denial. He knows what it's like to look over a city and be praised by, one by a people one moment and then be killed by them the next. And so what in the world is our response to Jesus knowing that he would be betrayed and that he was headed down the Calvary road for you and I? What is our response? Our response that if his obedience 
led him down a path with the aim of love and it went through suffering, then we have to be pretty confident that if we are obedient and our aim is love, it will lead us to, in varying degrees, down a path of suffering. But friends, he suffered so that when you suffer, you'll never suffer alone. Never. You'll never suffer alone. You're not alone in experience, and you're not alone experientially. You're never alone in experience, meaning he has walked those roads. He's been tempted in every way as we are, and yet without sin. And he will experience something that no believer will ever experience, and that is the forsaking of the Father towards him. He was forsaken so that we would never be. We will never suffer alone. And he goes on to say in John 14 that when he leaves, it is better for us because then the Holy Spirit will come and reside within us so that we are never alone in our experiences. He's always with us. So what is so impressive and so important about how Jesus unveils himself is he's not only calling us to obedience, he knows that it will be down a path of suffering and he says, I'm gonna walk it before you so that I can walk it with you. You'll never be alone. And finally, he unveils himself as a loving servant and we see it in verse 31. The aim of his obedient service is love, and it led him down a path of suffering, but the aim was love. That's where the chapter begins. Having loved those who were his own, he loved them to the end. And so now look at verses 31 through 35. It says this, when he had gone out, Jesus said, and I just want you to listen how redundant he seems to be with the word glorified. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified. Who's the he going out? It's Judas. When Judas had left after betraying him, it was like the ball is in motion. It's rolling down the hill. And he says this, now is the son of man glorified. I will be betrayed. And God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. I think he wants us to understand something about being glorified. What about you? So what's he communicating? He's communicating that the path of love is a path towards the glory of God. What happens at the cross is where justice and mercy collide. It's where they collide. God cannot just lightly pass over sin, although you and I want it so much. Oh, it was just a small thing. It was just a loose word. It was just a small little lie. I'm not as bad as this person or that person. We want forgiveness to be easy, but God would not be just if he just passed over our little sins. 
He would be a little holy, but he is completely holy, completely just. And any of you who have experienced being sinned against at all and the outrage that comes up in the heart, you know it's not meant to be passed over lightly. Sin is atrocious, it's ugly, it's painful, it's meant to be hated. But the cross is where Jesus shows himself off as the just and the justifier. The one who can look at sinners and say, not guilty, you are forgiven. What is most passionate and the greatest purpose of the cross is that God is seen for who he is. Holy in all that he does and yet unrelenting in delivering on his promises to keep a people for himself. Just and hating sin, and yet so committed to his name and so committed to his people that he kills his only son to make it happen. Jesus will be glorified through a gruesome death because it is through that death that sin is not taken lightly, but sinners are still loved greatly. Glory collides at the cross. And we can't have one without the other. You've got to have a holy, just God whose glory is worth praising and then one who commits to keep his word by loving sinners like you and I. He will be glorified when Christ dies and rises from the dead. Glory is what's at stake at the cross. And so it's his greatness, it's his glory that Jesus wants to be crystal clear. This is what love is. Love is getting people to see his glory. And the cross is the ultimate unveiling of his glory. And the question still rings, what do we do with what we see? Do we receive it or do we reject him? But he wants to communicate, love is getting people to see the glory of my Father. And so he says in verse 33, little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. But a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, I don't know if that strikes you. He says, a new commandment I give you, love one another. And yet Jesus says, the entire Old Testament is summarized with, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So what's so new? He said that all along. The command to love is not new. What's new is what follows. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. It is the power to do what you've been asked to do. 
It's no longer an external law. It's something that resides in the heart. It's someone. It's the person of the Holy Spirit. And he is saying, by my example and by my power, I empower you to love. And in that way, the commandment is new and fresh because I'm going to the cross. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, by the loving of one another, everyone will know that you are my followers. You're my disciples. Now, we talk a lot at this church about love. Love God. Treasure Christ. That's the name of our church. That means have affection for Jesus. And we talk about loving your neighbor a lot. But what we need to do, and this is just good Bible study, you find out what it means, but then you also ask, how can I live it out? What does it mean for me to love? Just as Jesus has loved us, you also are to love one another. Just as? Really? Well, how did he love us? On the cross, he forgives, right? He even yells out, Father, forgive them for they have no idea what they're doing. I don't believe that's necessarily a declaration of ignorance, but of sinfulness. They're sinners. And their sin has blinded them. And they've killed me. Through faith, forgive them. Jesus is a forgiving God. What else does he do? He serves them. We see that in John 13. Love serves. Pursues. It engages. Love also prays. It says that Jesus was praying for us and still is. So, just as I have loved you, so you love one another. Jesus died on this path of love. And we don't like doing the dishes. He died. The call to love is a lot more radical than any of us give credit to. This week we had a pastor's praying plan. And that's a time, do it three times a year, where all the pastors gather together and we spend time in prayer, prayer for the body, just praying for God to give clarity on future things and just spend that time uh, together. And as we were having that time, we always spent it at the beginning of the day in the Word together. And it was in the Word when we began to just read over. We were reading through some portions of Colossians. And as we were there, we all, all of us pastors began to talk about how fickle our emotions are. And we, we talked about it in context of marriage, just how at some moments... We don't want to be around our spouse at all. And at other moments, we can't get any closer. Some moments, I don't even want to utter your name. And other moments, I want to sit right next to you. And Pastor Byron said this. It was just a phrase, and I wrote it down. He said, it's amazing how the heart can be so convinced in either direction. 
so convinced that that person's my enemy and I need to get away. And so convinced that that person needs to be right here. Right? We can be so convinced. But we, I mean, that can be within an hour's time, right? We can be so convinced. If our feelings do this, up and down, is that really the grid on what love looks like? Surely there's something a little more stable than how I feel that will determine what love looks like. And it is. As I have loved you, so you love one another. That's stable. Jesus' love is clear, it's concrete, it's solid. It doesn't go up and down with my emotions. And he calls out for us to be a forgiving, serving, pursuing, praying, loving people that get dirty and don't give up on one another. Jesus defines it another way. If we think about forgiveness in Luke 17, he says this, pay attention to yourself. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day, in the same day, and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Because Jesus will say in other places, if you do not forgive, I will not forgive you. There's this vertical forgiveness that must be a part of loving one another. It is a recollection, it is a recalling that Christ has forgiven me and therefore I am ready to forgive you. I'm ready to forgive you. It's shifting from bitterness to brokenness and it is I'm ready to forgive you and when there is repentance and obviously repentance can happen seven times in one day. If there is repentance, we must forgive them. We must. This doesn't mean that sin done to you is not atrocious. This doesn't mean that sin done to you should be treated with with a cavalier attitude, that it's not painful. That's not it at all. It just means the focus is on what has been done for you and therefore what you can do to show that person the glory of Jesus through your life. We are a means of unveiling to sinners the glory of Jesus through how we love one another. C.S. Lewis says this, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable. Because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. What freedom would come if we were less concerned about being understood and we were asking, how can I love this person? What freedom would come if we are fighting less to be heard and asking more, how can I show them Jesus? Freedom would come when the mindset shifts 
from have they performed well enough for me to be with them to how can I communicate I am for them? Because no matter the relationship, married or not, the temptation when sinned against is removal, is distance, is running from, and Jesus ran to us. Just as I have loved you, so you love one another. Some of us are way too concerned about being a doormat. When it seems that every account as I look at Jesus, he was a doormat for us. And so we have to begin to ask. This is not saying that if there is physical abuse in the home that you should just stay in there and and stay getting hurt physically. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm afraid that many of us are too quick to push this command aside when he's saying to love one another means just as I have loved you. You love one another. And why is that important? Because as we love one another, the outside world is meant to look in and be shocked and say, look at what following Jesus does. That's verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Is it easy? No way. Is it right? Yes. Will he give you all the strength you need? Yes. And if you failed time and time again in loving well, you go to him. You go to him. And he says, I loved you all the way to the cross. Now, be an obedient servant who's willing to suffer to show off my glory with the aim of love. Let's pray. Father, I pray that right now we are asking this question. As the Jesus of John 13 is revealed, what does it look like to receive this picture? Father, I ask that we would receive it and not reject it. And although we will never be perfect like you are, I ask that where we are revealed the next step of obedience that we would take it, believing that that's the happiest path we can be on because you've not only done it before us, you will do it in us and give us all that we need. So Father, I pray that you would make us a loving people who look to your example and lean on your power to forgive and to serve, to pursue and to pray and fight with all of our might to communicate, I am for you and not against you. Right now in the stillness of this time, O oh God, have your way with our hearts. Remove anger. Remove frustration. Humble us, I pray, so that we might ask the one question, What does it look like to receive this unveiled picture of Jesus today? Father, please, for our own soul's sake and the joy of this church, may we not reject this picture of Christ. And may we follow you 
with our whole lives. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.